0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with the Washington Post. Hey, it's
0: Dossie. I to pick your brain on the. Truck. Hi, my
1: name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Kimberly Al Kelly. It's Thursday, February 28th. Today, an unproductive summit with North Korea. What happens when ISIS supporters try to come back to the U.S.? And a new push to count civilians killed by U.S. drones.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to get on a plane and fly back to a wonderful place called Washington, D.C. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, fellas. Thank you very much.
0: Talks between Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong Un unraveled after negotiators could not come to a deal over the
3: denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. They ended up canceling uh, what was going to be a planned lunch and signing ceremony, and you know, sped off in their motorcades to to leave the summit, and that was the end of that. Thursday
0: morning, we reached White House bureau chief Phil Rucker.
3: I'm in Hanoi, Vietnam, the capital uh, city here we 're wrapping up a trip uh, to cover president trump 's summit with Kim Jong Un, the North Korean leader
0: So take us back for for folks who are not there. Give us a rundown in terms of what happened last night.
3: President Trump and Kim Jong Un first met. Here in Hanoi, on Wednesday evening, they met for dinner. You know, they had steak, they had chocolate lava cake. It was very much a friendly sort of opportunity for them to both cultivate the other and develop what Trump has proudly called a friendship. On Thursday, they got down to more serious business with a series of meetings. They began with a one-on-one session, just Trump and Kim and their interpreters. And then they did broader sessions that included members of their delegations where they reached a a standoff over the sanctions issue. President Trump explained that Kim wanted all sanctions from the United States on North Korea to be lifted. And in exchange, he would agree to close one of North Korea's nuclear facilities. But he would not agree to give up all of North Korea's nuclear weapons, which was a point of contention for the United States. And at that point, President Trump said he decided to walk away from the negotiating table and there was no agreement, uh, no deal of any kind.
2: Basically, uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, and we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work and we'll see, but we had to uh, walk away from that particular suggestion. We had to walk away from that.
0: So, in your estimation, what was the main sticking point for the disagreement?
3: The main sticking point was simply the sanctions issue. This has been the top priority for North Korea for a while now. It's important to Kim Jong-un to try to create more economic opportunity as something of a renaissance in his country. And he has seen the American sanctions in North Korea as a, as a real obstacle for him for the development of his country. And so he's been pushing uh, President Trump in their conversations to release US sanctions. For the United States, of course, the sanctions has been a source of leverage and has been something uh, that Trump can use as a negotiating tool to try to get North Korea to abandon their nuclear weapons. And you know, both leaders came into the summit here in Hanoi thinking that they could find some sort of agreement. But it, it appeared that Kim was demanding much more than Trump was willing to offer in terms of alleviating those sanctions and was not willing to meet the U.S. demands or requests, rather, for North Korea to abandon their nuclear program.
0: Was it evident whether there was anything that they actually could agree on?
3: There were a couple of things that they agreed on, but because they didn't sign any sort of deal or execute a signing statement of some kind. None of this is set into stone. But a couple of areas where they agreed. Uh, Chairman Kim agreed to President Trump that he would not be testing nuclear weapons or, or ballistic missiles in North Korea for the foreseeable future. Remember, when Trump took office two years ago, North Korea was sending missiles over Japan, they were doing these rocket launches and nuclear weapons tests that were really alarming in Asia and certainly got President Trump's attention to the point where he nicknamed Kim Jong-un Little Rocket Man. That all subsided once Trump and Kim started talking with each other and developing this relationship and, and Kim gave Trump his word that he would not be resuming those tests. Another thing that they agreed on actually has to do with human rights. President Trump said that he questioned Kim Jong-un over the death of Otto Warmbier. This is the University of Virginia student who was arrested for allegedly trying to steal a poster and ended up having a brutal sentence in a North Korean prison. He was in a coma. He was sent back to the United States, but very soon thereafter he died. And, you know, a lot of people believe he died because of the harsh Brutal treatment that he received in the North Korean prisons. Trump asked Kim Jong un if he knew about that, and Kim Jong un said no. <laughs> and, and Trump actually said to the reporters that he took Kim at his word, and he thinks that the prisons in North Korea must be very rough, but it's unreasonable to expect that the chairman of the country would know about the treatment of Otto Warmbier. Uh, of course, that just does not seem to add up to a lot of human rights activists. This is a dictatorship, a totalitarian state. It's the kind of place where Kim Jong-un certainly knows about a high-profile American prisoner.
0: Now, obviously, as all of this was unfolding over there in Vietnam, there was a lot going on back here in the States as Michael Cohen testified before the House Oversight Committee. Did the president make any comments at all about the Cohen hearing?
3: He did. He uh, predictably was asked a question by one of the American journalists here. He said, look, he thinks it was irresponsible and inappropriate for the House Democrats to hold that hearing at the same time that he was conducting diplomacy at an international summit in Vietnam. He was bothered by that. He actually called it a fake
2: hearing. I tried to watch as much as I could. I wasn't able to watch too much because I've been a little bit busy. But I think having a fake Hearing like that and having it in the middle of this very important summit Is really a terrible thing they could have made it two days later or next week And it would have been even better they would have had more time But having it during this very important summit is sort of incredible and he lied a lot but it was very interesting because He didn't lie about one thing. He said no collusion with the Russian hoax. Uh,
3: And and he said that Michael Cohen mostly lied, although he said there was one instance where he doesn't think Michael Cohen was lying, which was in Cohen's uh, assertion that he he knew of no collusion between Trump and and Russian agents in the 2016 election. So Trump seeming there to want to have it both ways.
0: Is how the summit ended abruptly seen as a failure for President Trump?
3: You know, it, it depends on who's evaluating President Trump. It will be seen as a failure insofar as he billed himself as the ultimate deal maker. He flew 20 hours to get to Vietnam to meet with Kim Jong Un. He had everything on the line, and he's going back home empty handed with no deal, no agreement, no accord, no concession of any kind. Uh, that is a diplomatic failure. That being said, it could have been worse in the eyes of a lot of Trump critics. He did not create an international incident. He did not sign anything or agree to anything with Kim Jong-un that could be detrimental to the United States. And that is something that uh, Trump's critics, but also some in his own administration, feared he might have been compelled to do simply to generate a headline for a deal. Instead, he walked away from the negotiating table Uh, You know, he does not have the denuclearization historic deal that he thought he might be able to get here. And he thought he might have an an easy, big victory here in Hanoi. And he, he simply does not have that.
0: Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. Following negotiations, both Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo left open the question as to whether talks would resume.
3: I wish we could have gotten a little bit further. Um, But I'm I'm very um, optimistic that the progress that we made, both in the run-up to this summit, as well as the progress that the two leaders made over these past two days, put us in position to get a, a really good outcome.
0: But in a rare press conference, North Korea signaled a different tone and said through a translator that negotiators had sought for the U.S. to remove only partial sanctions. And in exchange...
4: We will permanently and completely dismantle all the nuclear material production facilities in the Nyungbin area, including plutonium and uranium, in the presence of U.S. experts and by the joint work of technicians from both countries.
0: So who is Hoda Muthana.
4: She is a woman who went to join the Islamic State during its ascendancy in Syria and Iraq and has had a U.S. passport renewed twice, but who is now being barred from returning to the United States even though she was born there.
0: Ishan Tharoor covers foreign affairs for The Post, and he's been following the case of Hoda Muthana for a while.
4: Well, we don't have any evidence of her participating in any of these atrocities associated with the Islamic State. She has a documented social media record of inciting violence. Uh, for example, she had a tweet where she said, Americans, wake up. Men and women all together. You have much to do while you live under our greatest enemy. Enough of your sleeping. Go on drive-bys and spill all their blood. Or rent a big truck and drive all over them. Veterans, patriots, Memorial Day, etc. killed them.
0: As a college student, Muthana had left the U.S. to travel to Syria in 2014. But now, at 24 years old, she wants to come back.
1: A woman who joined ISIS in Syria is speaking
4: exclusively to NBC News for the first time.
2: Do you think you'll be able to go back to the United States? Do you want to go to the United States?
4: i prefer America other than anywhere else. Yeah. There's just one problem. Very controversially last week, President Trump and as well as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo weighed in on her case, saying that they, she would not be allowed in.
0: Trump actually tweeted about it, writing, quote, I have instructed Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and he fully agrees, not to allow Hoda Muthana- back into the country.
4: It was quite surprising, but it's also hypocritical because just, you know, days earlier Trump had berated European governments for not taking and even threatened European governments for not taking their own nationals who've been found in these camps. And here he was creating the same exact situation for a US national found in Syria. With that decision,
0: Muthana could be the poster child for a much larger question. How did the US and other western nations Handle citizenship.
4: Over the past couple of years in Syria, as US backed forces have made advances against the Islamic State, it's turned up all these foreign fighters and recruits who joined ISIS uh, over the past four or five years who are now sort of stuck in these prison camps in northeastern Syria that are run by the US backed Kurdish allies, Kurdish forces. And so there's a big question of what to do with these people facing the United States as well as other governments. Now, in the case of Ms. Mutanda in particular, it's particularly complicated because though she is born in the United States and claims U.S. citizenship, the Trump administration is challenging the legality of her citizenship because her father was a Yemeni diplomat.
0: What does her father's diplomatic status actually have to do with her citizenship?
4: So the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services the guidelines specify an exemption for birthright citizenship for children not born subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. So the argument would be that because her father was a Yemeni diplomat and subject to the jurisdiction of sort of that foreign government, she's not eligible for the same status as a Yemeni immigrant's child born in the United States. And again, this is a rather complicated case. Mutana claims that her father was not a Yemeni diplomat at the time of her birth, that he had already left the service of the international diplomatic organization that he was part of, that you cannot challenge the grounds of her citizenship on that basis. And the fact that she had a U.S. passport and that she had a U.S. passport renewed in 2014 suggests that the U.S. government recognized her citizenship for all those years.
0: And what is the Trump administration saying about her right now?
4: They view her as a national security threat and may justify the revocation of her passport on those grounds. Their critics, of course, in Washington and elsewhere say that even if she is a threat, there is plenty of precedent of bringing back foreign jihadists, other threats to this country and trying them in the courts here.
0: In that, there would still be challenges in the court system in terms of gathering evidence against her.
4: Right. I think with her, the, there is a pretty clear documented track record of her radicalization, of her tweeting whole series of threats and rather blood-curling incitements to violence, calling for Muslims in the United States to wage terror attacks within the United States' borders. Of course, it's quite challenging when you have hundreds of these foreign fighters who've gone to join the Islamic State and other fundamentalist groups in Syria and Iraq. The U.S. and its European partners are really struggling to amass the necessary evidence they need to successfully prosecute many of these people. And that is part of why they are so wary of bringing these people home, because there's the prospect of them going through their judicial process, going to the courts, and not getting particularly harsh sentences, being allowed to return into the mainstream. But if you're a a national security official in any of these countries, it poses a headache.
0: Now, the U.S. isn't the only country facing
4: this challenge right now. Of course. And it's a much bigger issue in Europe because the numbers are much greater in Europe. Last week, we also saw Theresa May's government move to bar another woman in these camps. Her name is Shamima Begum. She is a 19-year-old, 20-year-old who left to join ISIS as a 15-year-old schoolgirl from London. And her cases generated a huge number of headlines because she was discovered in these camps run by the Kurdish militias and seemed rather unapologetic. And so that generated a lot of sort of angry right-wing tabloid frenzy over, you know, this unapologetic ISIS bride as the term was used for her. And uh, the British government, the Home Secretary uh, last week, indicated that they would revoke her citizenship, effectively rendering her stateless. Though the British government contends that because her parents have Bangladeshi heritage, she could theoretically become a Bangladeshi citizen. Last week, the Bangladeshi government said, no, she's not a citizen of Bangladesh. She's not our problem. She's your problem. So basically, right now, what is her status? It's a complicated set. It's because they're obviously challenging this, and uh, but but there's a chance that the British government would render her effectively stateless, which is you know something that governments aren't supposed to do in this day and age. And of course, this is something that the British government has done in over the past decade. It has revoked citizenship of foreign fighters who went from the UK to fight, join various militant outfits in the Middle East and Afghanistan. And so so this is there is a precedent for this in the, in, in the UK that doesn't exist in the United States. So what are some of the other complications? Well, beyond uh, these recruits who went over to join the Islamic State, now you have a whole other problem of the children that were born in the Islamic State. Um, Both Mutanna and Shamayu Begum gave birth to uh, babies recently, and and their status is also now in question. To what country do they belong if their parents aren't allowed to have citizenship in the countries where they were born? What are
0: lawmakers both in the U.S. and in the U.K. and other countries abroad, um, what are their challenges to this?
4: Well, it's, it's becoming an incredibly loaded political debate. And it's, it's fanning all the flames of nativism that you think you would imagine you'd hear when you have the prospect of these kinds of radicals coming home. And, and yes, I think here in the U.S. as well, it's, it, it reflects Trump's broader kind of approach toward refashioning what American citizenship ought to be.
2: And the Democrats want to continue giving automatic birthright citizenship to every child born to an illegal alien.
4: And it's plucking at a seam that's been running through the course of the, his presidency so far, this nationalist, nativist approach to his politics.
2: Because of this crazy, lunatic policy that we can end.
0: So even if she does return and faces the justice system, we have people who have been convicted of heinous crimes, murders, you know, assaults, and still their citizenship is not revoked. So how is this case different?
4: That's an incredibly important question. And this is something that's being argued in Europe as well, that, look, you have rapists, you have mass murderers, you have serial killers, you have people involved in really heinous crimes who nevertheless don't lose their citizenship even after they're found guilty for these crimes. Uh, and 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 the decision to selectively target these individuals uh, is both inconsistent with the laws of the land, and also betrays a certain kind of nationalist ideological streak. Mutanna is a Yemeni; she's somebody who, who's, you know, other Yemeni citizens are are subject to the travel ban now from the United States. Um, but you know, in the same camp as her is a, is a dual Canadian-American national woman, uh, a Mennonite who converted to Islam. And there's no discussion as of now of you know, revoking her American citizenship. Uh, you have another you know, white British convert to Islam, who uh, Jack Letts, who was found in these camps as well. And, and there's been no discussion of, of revoking his British passport as of yet. So there's been this clear, somewhat racial uh, delineation of you know, this, this creation of a certain kind of hierarchy of citizenship in the process of these governments targeting these people.
0: So for most people, I imagine, who are born here in this country, you never have to think about your citizenship and it being taken away. What are we supposed to think about all this? Well,
4: and I think this is something that really we are thinking about now because of the various actions of the Trump administration, as well as the rhetoric coming from certain corners of the White House. Uh, that, that, you know, for citizenship, there is a fundamental fragility to it. And Americans don't grow up thinking that. But as someone not born in the United States, uh, there's not a day that goes by where I am not in some way, fundamentally aware of how a distant bureaucracy or government controls my status and my right to be here and my right to live here. And, uh, and if, and if this kind of incredibly rare and extreme case of an ISIS bride, as the term goes, uh, you know, fighting for her rights in Syria, uh, attracts attention to the bigger picture of how so many people around the world, some people who've come to the United States, really are aware of the fragility of their, of their rights, and many Americans are not, I think that's at least an interesting development.
0: Ishan the covers foreign affairs for The Post. He writes the daily foreign newsletter, Today's Worldview. You can sign up for that newsletter at
2: WashingtonPost.com.
0: And now, one more thing.
2: There's no doubt that some innocent people have been killed by drone strikes. It is not true that it has been this sort of willy-nilly you know let's bomb a village it, it that is not how its folks have operated
0: earlier this month the post broke news about a new report that's being done by senior pentagon officials a sweeping examination of civilian deaths in military operations my name is
1: missy ryan and i cover the pentagon and military issues for the post
0: missy has been writing about how this report is being used to assess some of the tactics that have been used by the U.S. military to target ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And one of the things Pentagon officials are trying to do is answer a central question. Why don't we know how many people we've actually killed in airstrikes?
1: So according to the U.S. military, there have been a little over 1,000 civilians confirmed killed in the air war in Iraq and Syria, which began in 2014 against the Islamic State.
3: This air campaign is the most precise air campaign in history, and it has been
2: relentless. And before any strike is taken, there must be near certainty that no civilians will be killed or injured.
1: But according to outside groups, the estimates range up to 7,000 and even higher based on uh, different information that NGOs and watchdog groups have for tracking civilian casualties. The assumption should be that anywhere munition is being dropped, civilians will be there. And so there are just sort of these two parallel, never intersecting narratives about what has occurred in these wars. And one is the -the on-the-ground view from civilians, from aid groups, from witnesses and survivors of airstrikes. And the other one is the official stream of information from the U.S. military. And it produces a very different view of what these wars actually consisted of. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to look into this issue. Why does this big gap exist? Well, this has been a recurring issue, not just since 2014 when we started this very intense air operation against the Islamic State, but really since 2001 and we began the war on terror operations in Iraq and in Afghanistan and other places. There are always civilians who come forward and allege there have been civilian casualties.
4: Local officials say bodies are still being pulled from the rubble after an air raid on Islamic State targets triggered a huge explosion on Thursday
1: sometimes because of airstrikes, sometimes because of raids or other kinds of operations.
0: How
1: many killed?
0: Inside,
2: inside the house.
1: And the military generally um, doesn't confirm deaths have occurred unless they have first-hand information through their own information channels, which would be intelligence, um, direct observation by American troops, or, you know, in this air war, it's usually overhead imagery, which would be a drone feed or um, imagery taken from an aircraft that's actually dropping the bomb. We take every allegation seriously, and we are executing a well-developed process to assess and, if necessary, investigate each of these allegations. And oftentimes they would say, you know, we don't think that this is a credible claim. And so what the military is now saying is we've got to be able to incorporate that outside information, be it stuff from social media or, or witness accounts, and, and, and really consider that more fully and say, OK, um, just because we didn't have a civilian in our drone feed doesn't mean that there wasn't someone there. If you have a better understanding of when strikes occur... Then that can have a, a sort of positive feedback loop into the precautions and the regulations prior to future strikes. You can say, okay, well, next time we do that, we need to do something differently or we need to have greater intelligence or whatever. The hope is that better accounting will lead to better operations in the future.
0: Missy Ryan covers the military and national security for the Post. That's it for today's show. You can learn more about the stories in this episode at postreports.com. I'm Kimberly Kelly. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.